Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining is my good buddy, Jonathan Willis. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Well, since it's August 1, basically nothing. <laughs> well, uh, you know, our, the, the mailbag we have for today's show would, uh, would beg to differ. Well, the, and that's true, and it's, a, it's an exciting list of questions, actually. You, you did a pretty good job. It is. Well, I can't, I can't take any credit for it. I mean, I, I did you know, send out the initial tweet, but it's really the, uh, the listeners of the show and the followers on Twitter that have come through with us. And uh, I've done a couple of these so far, and people seem to really be enjoying the mailbag shows. I think it's a good way to, uh, to kind of bridge the gap here in the off-season during the dog days of the summer. So it's, uh, it's a perfect fit for us. Absolutely. Um, okay, this isn't a question, but this is a, a statement that I wanted to read to you. And this was a, 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 a listener who went on iTunes and left a review for the show. And I think this might be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Um, it goes, uh, I, this is the, the, the listener is September 28th, 1972. That's the username. And he goes, I just like to start off with the fact that I'm a real person, unlike JF Barube. The PDO cast is easily my favorite. It's even better than PA Parento in a third line scoring role. In fact, the only thing I'd rather hear than Dimitri's dulcet tones on hockey matters is someone signed Andreas Athanasiu to an offer sheet because the Red Wings are currently over the cap. So that one really just, uh, that one really hits all the soft spots in my heart. So I, uh, <laughs> Better than PA Parento in a third line scoring role. Which wow, is, which is pretty good. Which is pretty good. Yeah, oh yeah, guess. yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I, I I really don't like when people uh you know like retweet uh compliments and stuff on Twitter and stuff like that. But I did want to use that just as a little bit of a segue to get people to uh go take a second to rate and review the show on iTunes because. Uh, it's very important. I, 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 I noticed that the other day the PDO guest had climbed all the way up to 12th in the sports and recreation podcast section on iTunes, which is pretty cool. And, and, uh, I hope that keeps trending upwards and moving forward. And I, I hear that the uh, reviews are very important to that process. So with that out of the way, uh, let's get to the mailbag. And, uh, you know, we got a, a lot of good questions here. I mean, both in terms of quantity and quality, which you like to see. And the first one from, uh, from Dom Saravo goes, why doesn't Clefbaum start shooting knuckle pucks and call them Clefbombs? And then he goes on to say, really though, is he good? Spend at least 45 minutes on this. Um, we're not going to spend 45 minutes on it. 
But I do think a an Oscar Cliff bomb discussion would be a useful thought exercise here because he's uh, he's been a name that's come up a lot in hockey Twitter circles this offseason for whatever reason. I feel like he's been a really divisive subject in the whole um, discussion about catch-all metrics, you know, whether it's uh, goals above replacement or basically war representatives uh, in in hockey. Um, Where are you at with Oscar Kleffbaum? Yeah, he's he's good. I I don't think I think what probably set everything off, um, I don't even remember whose model it was. I, I'm, I'm very sorry. My, my mind is a, has been a bit of a, a, a jelly here this summer. Mm. So so I, I do apologize for to whoever's model it was. Somebody had him ranked as like the second best defenseman in the NHL, something like that. Yep. And um, I, I believe it was Tyler Dello whose critique I was reading that talked about all the things that Connor McDavid does and how some of that gets, you know, lumped in over to Clefbaum and I, I think that's very true. I, I apologize, Tyler, if it wasn't you and, and to you know whoever else I, I did actually steal that from. I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Having said that, you know Oscar Clefbaum has been a very good defenseman for for several years now. He's basically always been a, a 50 plus percent um, Fenwick guy on the Oilers, which hasn't been easy to do. Um, you know, prior to last season, right? Uh, last year, I think he got a lot of the credit in traditional circles. Or sorry, he a lot of the credit that he probably should have gotten in traditional circles went to Adam Larson because Adam Larson kind of came in and uh, that that pairing performed very well. And people are like, "Oh, you know, well, gosh, they sure did a good thing trading that Taylor Hall for that Adam Larson." But um, to me, Clefbaum was the guy doing a lot of the driving on that pairing, and and that's that's no slight to Larson, who's very good. Um, but but Clefbaum to me is probably a good number two NHL defenseman right. I, well, I at this stage and, and he could be better than that you know like he's still young yeah and then the, I mean also the obvious problem with uh and I know I understand why people do it for simplicity and stuff but the, the obvious problem with uh with numbering defensemen like that is that it obviously depends on who your other guys are like yeah. you know if, if you if you have like three or four other really good guys and I guess Oscar Clubbump could be your best defenseman and you know vice versa is true as well um I think a lot of a lot of his value in these metrics comes with the fact that he's probably like the most disciplined defenseman in the league, right? I, I, I believe, yes. um, you know, he has 189 regular season games, uh, hovering around 4,100 total minutes in that time, and he's taken eight total minor penalties, which is remarkable. And, um, it's it's a skill I, I know you can uh, you can quibble with it because sometimes it can be a little bit of a subjective thing and and obviously you know there's an argument to be made that maybe sometimes you're just passing up opportunities to take penalties where you may have been better suited to just take it rather than giving a conceding a goal against but at the same time it also is generally I feel like a decent proxy for just guys that are in the right position at the right time and that aren't constantly having to chase the game and chase the puck and having to, you know, hook and take guys down just because they're blowing by them constantly. So I like to see that a lot. And I, 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 I have a soft spot in my heart for defensemen who don't take a lot of penalties. And so that's where a lot of his value comes from. And then obviously last season, you know, he was asked uh, to do more offensively and, and he did well in that role, especially on the power play. And I don't know, were you a bit surprised to see how much more he started shooting? Because I feel like 
you know, obviously he was playing more, so that has something to do with it, and he was being used in, in cushier opportunities. But at the same time, I feel like he had like twice as many shots on goal as he'd had at, in any previous season before that, and and you know, that was an interesting little development for him in terms of his career trajectory. Well, I, I mean, he he doesn't have a whole lot of backstory, right? And 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 one of the one of the shifts to me is probably that playing with a guy like Larson versus playing with Justin Schultz, hmm. it lends itself to, to playing a different kind of style. Like when he was with Schultz, he was the defensive defenseman on that pairing. And, and with Larson, he was the guy who, who would jump in more and, and be more active. Um, not to take anything away from him, but that's, that's part of it. Uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned the penalties thing. Um, to me, it's a farce that Clefbaum didn't actually rate higher in the <clears throat> excuse me in the uh, Lady Bing conversation. Yeah, I, I wish we saw that these because these defensemen who can do this are extremely rare, mm-hmm. and uh, and they don't seem to get enough credit in those those discussions. Uh, and, and in Clefbaum's case, I think it is earned. I don't like I had I guess some of the comments you'll get from from sort of the old school people online. Um, even from Oilers fans about Oscar Clefbaum are interesting because I, I don't see a player who is at all soft. Like I see a big, strong player with really good wheels who doesn't have to take interference penalties. Like he can make mistakes and he's fast enough to get back. And, and when he gets back, he doesn't have to use a stick because, you know, he's 6'3", 220 and, and he's a big guy. People will complain about him being soft. I, to me, it's ludicrous. Like he's just a very good, very disciplined defenseman. Um, I, I do think he, he still has a little bit, he's prone to kind of that, that big gaff that you sometimes see with younger players. Right. And, and he's kind of coming out of it this year, this past season. I, I think he's going to continue to progress. Cause I, I do think that's a thing with younger players that sometimes my, my pet theory, and I haven't confirmed this, so I shouldn't say it is, uh, is that, you know, sometimes there is going to be a little bit of a di- difference between your shot metrics and your goal metrics. And for young players, I feel like the goal metrics, um, are a little bit underperforming of the shot metric sometimes just because they haven't added that detail yet. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at any rate, that's that's uh, my, my rambling review of well, Oscar Clefbaum. And, and, you know, to the point about the uh, the glaring gaffes, like, you know, that's that's something that people always hold against a guy like even Eric Carlson, for example, and, and ob- the obvious argument uh, against, you know, blowing that out of proportion is if you're constantly handling the puck or if you're constantly having to just eat up a ton of minutes against the other team's best players like occasionally you're gonna get exposed a little bit just because defending at the nhl level is is incredibly hard to do and occasionally the other guys are just gonna you know get the better of you and you're gonna wind up looking bad and it's gonna be on a lot of highlight reels but as long as the good outweighs the bad i i'm perfectly okay with a few blunders like that so i don't i i never i never try to put too much stock in them i know that our our eyes and our biases can kind of deceive us a little bit in that regard well the thing i think people forget is is everybody does this like if you watch Duncan Keith for any period of time, he's going to have a few of these. Yep. You watch Drew Doughty for any period of time, he's going to have a few of these. And and I think people, you know, because you, the NHL is so, um, it, it's 30, 31, I guess now, niche markets where you watch your own team for 75, 80, 82 games a year, but you don't necessarily, you don't, you don't watch LA if, if LA isn't your team for that period of time. So you don't see Doughty do it. You don't see Duncan Keith do it. And, and so the reputation of those guys I feel like because nobody can, well, you know, unless you're Corey Schneider, uh, nobody can sit down and watch all the games. Um, it, it's kind of really easy to take, well, this guy's a little bit more offensive and, oh, look at that giveaway count. You know, he's he's probably prone and look, I see a giveaway here. Yep. He's one of those guys and, and just kind of lump him into a box rather than 
than it being based on anything. Yeah. Well, I, I think the interesting thing here from the Oilers' perspective is, uh, like, they have this top pairing in Larson and Clefbaum uh, locked up on their books for, you know, just over $8 million combined for each of the next four seasons. And that basically spans their entire peaks. I, I believe they're both, like, in, uh, 24 years old right now. So that's that 24 to 28 really, really prime spot. And that's a nice luxury, man. I mean, uh, you know, you're seeing some of the prices that top defensemen are going for these days. Having both those guys for that price combined is, is pretty nice. And, you know, I, I've been asked a lot about Adam Larson and whether my thoughts on him have changed in the past year since the trade and i'm curious for your take on this because obviously i imagine that you watched him much more closely this year than you had previously while he was playing for the devils well i watched him a lot more but uh i i've always been going back to the 2011 draft i've been an adam larson fanboy so i've i've I was pretty familiar with him before he showed up in it. Mm. Yeah, it, it's interesting, um, especially watching him in the postseason. I did get, uh, you know, an added appreciation for what he brings to the table. I thought that, uh, you know, he was really good in the neutral zone defensively and in his own zone. He was, he was, you know, it was all the things you hear about him being very solid, but it was nice to actually see them as opposed to them just, you know, being thrown around as cliches. Um, my thoughts on the trade still haven't necessarily really changed because the, the argument always was sort of just, uh, you know, an opportunity cost or from a, from a, co- you know, a value perspective. And I would still rather have, uh, a guy with Taylor Hall's skill set than, than Adam Larson's, but, like I said, having those two guys under contract now and basically kind of building around them on that blue line is is a good starting point for the Oilers. And um, it's, I, I guess it's, it might be looking a bit better than it did at the time, but it's I, I I'm still hesitant to you know view it anything other than a loss for the Oilers in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I haven't really moved a whole lot on the trade. I I, I like Adam Larson. I've always liked Adam Larson. Um, he doesn't bring you much offensive dimension. And the one thing I think that he's gotten better at from when I kind of first started watching him when he broke into the league, the one area I think he's really improved is he gets victimized less by his speed hmm. because he's not, he's not a terribly fast defenseman. And, um, but, but he's, he's just incredibly smart and he's, he's very strong. And uh, you combine those two things, you can make up for having you know, just average speed. And he's, he's learned to do that over the years in the NHL. Um, I think he's very useful, but... To me, the you look at all the teams that win Stanley Cups. You look at Chicago. You look at Pittsburgh. It's having multiple talents on multiple lines, and the you know Edmonton is kind of settled into Leon Drysital as their their secondary offensive weapon. But if you can have um, McDavid and Hall, I, I feel like that. Well, it comes down to a dry sidle hall discussion in some ways. If you're going to make a sacrifice of one on the defense, and and maybe you don't even have to, because you look at Pittsburgh's defense core, it's not that great. Chris Letang accepted, and they they basically won without Letang last year. And and the reason they won was they had that trio of Crosby, Malkin, and Kessel. Mm. And to me, the possibility to do that in Edmonton was was too good to pass up, even to bring in a player as good as Adam Larson. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, okay, so Matt Walker asks, and this is, uh, you know, kind of just continuing this discussion we're having about Larson and Clefbaum and defensemen is, he asks, you know, how would you rank defensive qualities 
based by importance for 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 defensemen and basically you know he cites net battles uh zone entry prevention uh you know playing the neutral zone um actually moving the puck with zone exits and so on and so forth and you know i don't i don't think there's necessarily one uh right answer here because obviously like all of these things are just uh pieces of the puzzle and you can make up for deficiencies in one area by being really good in the other but i maybe it speaks more to to personal preference and and sort of just what you enjoy personally so i don't know like in terms of your defenseman your ideal defenseman um what what do you like to see from them uh in the individual components of their game yeah i I thought this was a really interesting question and and um the way i kind of broke it down is there are things that if a defenseman is good at or sorry, there are things that if a defenseman is bad at, there's not really any way to shield it. So if you're a defense, if you're a defenseman who's bad at preventing zone entries, hmm. um, I, I, you're, you know your team structure throughout the neutral zone can kind of um, herd guys over towards your partner rather than you. But you can only do that to a certain extent. Like if you're bad at at preventing zone entries, zone entries are going to get allowed. Whereas if you're bad at zone exits, to a large degree, you can build your breakout along uh, around a partner who can really pass. Um, like just I, again, this is me watching Edmonton more than anybody else. But for years, they ran a, a Ladislav Schmid Jeff Petrie defense pairing, and Petrie made nine out of ten zone exits routinely. Like I would sit down and I would count them, and and he would make them all. And and Edmonton wasn't a very good team, but but that pairing was effective. Um, so I think some things you can compensate more more for, and other things you can't. So for me, I had kind of zone entry prevention and and battle ability the ability to battle both in front of the net and, and on puck retrievals, which which wasn't mentioned, but I, I kind of lump in as the same thing. Right. I had those two things higher than, than zone exits or or neutral zone work, which which to me, um, there's only so much a defenseman can do there. Like he's a, relatively speaking, he's a smaller part of the team scheme than he is when it comes to zone entry prevention. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious uh, in the coming years as we get more uh, tracking technology and, you know, just our understanding of the game grows. I think this is going to be one area that we're going to make the biggest um, advancements in because, you know, unless, as you mentioned, you're watching every one of these games, uh, you know, very closely and really tracking it and paying attention to every single little detail. And even then you're going to miss a lot of stuff. Um, it's It's really kind of tough to see some of this stuff in terms of how how it manifests itself in the results and what really is and isn't important and i it, the other you know caveat here is you mentioned uh defending against zone entries and while i agree that you know if you lack foot speed um you're generally going to either wind up sagging back quite a bit and get just conceding the blue line or you're going to get, you know, the guy's just going to go around you. Uh, and neither is, neither is necessarily a, a great outcome for you and your team, but there are certain ways to help kind of defend against that uh, structurally with, 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 your, with your defensive scheme and, you know, with a partner helping or maybe the forward sagging back a little bit more and being more defensively aware. Um, the thing with, with zone exits and actually moving the puck is... I feel like that's probably the most uh most repeatable skill would you say like like if you can either move the puck and make tape to tape passes or you can't and that's a very kind of easy thing to isolate and actually evaluate a player on versus some of these other things kind of really uh it's it's kind of a team dynamic and also we're not sure like you know with net battles I'm I'm not sure if that's something that 
what what type of player is particularly good at it or whether they can keep doing it on a year to year basis. Like, you know, for a long time, we, we were led to believe that you needed big, strong defensemen because they were the only ones that could really compete in front of their own net. But we're seeing uh, in the past few years that that might not necessarily be true. And there's plenty of examples of smaller guys that you know like a guy like ryan alice for example is 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 small in stature but he has a very low center of gravity and he works the angles really well and he definitely holds his own in front of his own net so i don't know i guess that was a long-winded way of saying there's a lot of different uh factors to consider here and we're going to learn more about him over the next few years but i'm always drawn towards guys that can actually move the puck because it's just a very easy thing to pick you know just pick up on with your own eyes well, and personal bias. I mean, yeah, I don't really want to. I don't. I don't really want a defenseman on my team who can't move the puck at least a little bit. Like, right. uh, to me, that and and you know the NHL reality is maybe you have to have that guy to compensate for other things you have on your team, or it makes sense to have him or whatever. But it, it is something you'd like to see. Um, and and it's interesting the thing you mentioned about net battles and not needing big defensemen. I don't know how it's been glossed over, but uh, it has been. Uh, Chicago won three Stanley Cups with a top four on defense. Um, I'm not sure if it was all three years or if it was, but anyway, for most of the, the top three on defense, you know, outside of Brent Seabrook, everybody else in that top four group was basically under six foot two, 200 pounds. Like uh, Nicholas Jalmerson, who's maybe in, in your top 10 list of pure defensive defensemen is, uh, you know, under that size. So absolutely, you can definitely be effective without that. Yeah. And okay, so here's a good follow up question. And it asks, can skilled forwards who excel in the neutral zone, uh, particularly at zone injuries, succeed despite poor transition defensemen on their team? And uh, the person asking this question is a Devils fan and they cite you know, guys like Taylor Hall and Nico Hishier and now Marcus Johansson and even a guy like Michael McLeod coming up. And I think this is a uh, a fascinating question because, and you can speak to this as someone who watched Taylor Hall very closely at Edmonton for years. Um, he had to do a lot of solo efforts where he was basically retrieving the puck deep in his own zone and basically going coast to coast and really doing everything himself because a lot of it was out of necessity. And I, I don't. Th- I think you can succeed that way, but I think it's very challenging because, you know, there's so many hoops you have to jump through. And by the time you actually make it to the offensive zone, you're probably drained your, your, you know, your gas tank quite a bit and you're going to be less effective there. And that's where you can do the most damage. And we saw a lot of that with the, with the Penguins, uh, you know, two seasons ago when Mike Sullivan took over where under Mike Johnson, they had this, um, this really poor breakout scheme and it was really hindering them because either, you know, they were constantly just getting stuck in the neutral zone and having the puck come back in their own zone or Crosby and Malkin were having to really just do all of the work themselves. And Mike Sullivan took over and they made a few moves in, you know, acquiring a guy like Trevor Daly and, and, and bringing some younger guys up. And all of a sudden uh, everything seemed to just kind of click and, and their offense really exploded from there. So I think that would be a good example of how all those things are, are tied together. But I don't know. Do you think that you can succeed without defensemen that can move the puck in today's NHL? Not on the team level. Mm. Uh, on on the individual level, I think you can be a very good scorer and, and even have an effective line if you have, you have good enough players. Like um, Hall was specifically mentioned in the question, and, and he's a great example because you know between 2010 and 2016, he played for a team that had very few transition defensemen. And uh, when he was on the ice five on five over those uh, three or six years, 
the Oilers were were plus three when he was off the ice. They were minus two hundred twenty five. So so I, I when I looked at the question, I I saw it sort of being as a you know can a if you're a if you're if you're a zone entry forward if you're a guy who likes to lug the puck and and, and enter the opposition zone are you are you hurt more than a different type of player by not having those transition defensemen and and I don't think you are I think if anything you're you're better off because you can take on more of the load yourself you can do more of it hmm. um, so you know, if you're building a team you better have a bunch of transition D or else you end up like Edmonton from 2010 to 2016. And you're, you're, you know, minus a jillion when, when Hall's not on the ice. But uh, as a, as a player, like Hall was excellent in Edmonton. He, he was brilliant and um, the losing kind of obscured it in the market a little bit and, and has tainted things. But when you're plus three and they're minus 225 without you, like that, that to me is uh, the definition of excelling. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. Um, all right, well, sticking with uh, with Taylor Hall and, and the Devils, um, Brandon Wong asks, what can we realistically expect from Nico Hishier? What do the stats say about his junior game? And David Paluzzi uh, adds, who are our favorites for the Calder Trophy this year? Um, I... I, I I don't know. There's 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 a couple different ways to approach uh you know those questions. Um what what are you expecting from a guy like Nico Hishier this year? Well, I I have to plead a certain level of ignorance here. Um this uh, I've been covering hockey full-time for 5 or 6 years now and and have been doing this for almost a decade in some capacity and I've never paid less attention to the entry draft than I did this year. Um, so, so I was looking at it when we got this question. Um, I, and, and this is very basic analysis, but you know, 86 points in 57 games in the, in the Quebec league is, is good. It's not great for like a first overall pick. I think you have to take into account. It's his first year in North America. It's a very good number for that. Um, on a personal level, I love that Hishier is a complete player. I, I love that he's, you know, a guy who who grew up without a super hockey intensive background like he did other sports as a kid. I, I love that he speaks four different languages. Like, but, but this is all personal bias stuff. Like, right. I, I think you can be be dumb as a brick and still be, if you're a good hockey player, be a useful NHLer. And um, so, I, I'm hoping he's a good player because I I love the player type. I love the story. Uh, and the numbers are good, but uh, I, I kind of defer to the scouts who point out that this is just a weaker draft than anything we've seen since probably 2012. Well, and I think that both you and I would generally uh, lean towards the side of conservative uh, expectations and projections for you know young young prospects who are taking the leap. Like I understand why fans want to. Uh, get excited and think of the best case scenario, especially if they're like a fan of the player or the team. And that's all well and good. And I completely get it. I don't want to rain on that parade. But generally speaking, I, th- I feel like we can get a bit carried away with our expectations for young players. Like it's, uh, it's not one of those things where each year there's going to be this, uh, you know, linear, linear, just uh, upward trajectory. Like sometimes there's, there's bumps in the road and sometimes guys take longer to develop or, or, you know, have down years before they finally reach that, that highest level. So I'm not sure. Like it, it, it's tough for the Calder. I mean, obviously from this year's class, Hishier and Patrick stand out. I'm not sure whether 
how you know what role either guy is going to play or whether they're even going to start the year with a team or, or or spend the full season with their teams i mean a lot of this is opportunity based where you're just going to need to get those you know power play top six minutes and and accumulate the points and it might not necessarily be you know 10 years from now we might not look back and say that's definitely the best player from the from this draft class that wound up winning the calder i mean Connor McDavid didn't even win the Calder in his rookie season. So, um, it, it's, I, I never really know what to make of, of questions like this in the summer. I understand why people are interested, but there's so many ways to go about it. I think if anything, I'd go with a guy from a past class that is still eligible, whether it's, uh, you know, like a, maybe like a Dylan Strom or something is an interesting pick here because he's more physically mature than these guys and, and stand, and, you know, stands to reason that he could have a, a pretty high end role in the Coyotes right out of the gate. So I don't know. He might be an interesting pick for this. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned, um, how much this is opportunity based because it, it's so true. Like if I'm limiting it to this year's class, I, I probably take Patrick over his year just because, um, there might be an opportunity to play on that marvelous Philadelphia power play mm. and, and that could make all the difference, but I don't, I don't really like either of them as a front runner. And I don't think there is a front runner in this field. Like uh, when McDavid was a rookie, it was really easy to pick out a front runner when uh, Crosby and Ovechkin were rookies in the same year. When Malkin was a rookie, these are, these are guys who, you know, clearly lead the pack. To me, I see a very wide open field. Um, Strom was on my list, but you know the fact that he still hasn't made the jump is pretty concerning, even though he's been a major point producer and junior. Um, if you're looking at the Coyotes, I, I think Clayton Keller might even be a better bet on that team. But you know, I don't think then you have to take in the Arizona team situation to, into account. Yes, they're going to get some opportunities, but they're also going to be held back by playing for a for a lesser club. Um, the guy I like. If defensemen won the Calder Trophy, I'd like Charlie McAvoy in Boston, but uh, yeah. defensemen don't win the Calder Trophy as a rule. So I, I don't know. I think it's wide open. I, I looked at Brock Bozer. I looked at Josh Hosang. I, there, there's there's probably 10 guys who could win it right now, and, and that's not counting the possibility of, of somebody coming out of nowhere um, and playing on Patrick Kane's wing. Yeah. And, well, and, the, and the, the tough thing is... Um... You know, on the one hand, you can make the argument that playing for a bad team is a positive because it means that it's more likely that you're actually going to kind of get those opportunities. But at the same time, you're that also likely means you're playing with worse players. So, you know, for a young player, it's generally you're you're playing more of a complementary passenger role as opposed to just bringing all your, your line mates up with you and really moving the needle yourself. So. It's, it's, it's tough to know, uh, you know, how much of that, like for a guy like Clayton Keller or even a Tyson Jost in, in Colorado, like I love the skill, but I can't, I, I'm not really sure what to make of the fact that they play for such, for such bad teams. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I, it's one of those, it's, it's, a, it's one of those scenarios where it's, it's good and it's bad, right? Like it, it can work for you. It can work against you. Um, so much of this is situational that it's, it's really hard to say. Okay, so Dan Saracini asks, uh, players you and your guest uh, like in spite of bad underlying numbers. Um, this, is a, this is a good one. This is going to be very enlightening to, uh, to our personal, personal preferences. Who, can you think of any guys off the top of your head that really uh, fit the bin here? Well, 
Dimitri, I did all my homework that you I was did. assigned. That's right. You're it, a very it took good ages, student. So, yep. so none of this is off the top of my head. Nice. Well, let's pre- <laughs> um, let's pretend do, like this is a, you know freewheeling. You here. know, just off the top of my head, yeah. when I look around the league, <laughs> uh, do do I get to say Phil Kessel? Is is that am I allowed to say Phil Kessel or, or have... Mark Edward Vlasic? Because both those guys had had bad underlying numbers last year. I feel like that's cheating, though. Yes. Yeah. I think more so. Uh, you know, as a general trend or a career norm, as opposed to just last year, because I feel like both those guys in the past would not have fit here. Yes, yes, no, I, I, I put them. I, yeah, I didn't think I'd get to say them. Yeah, uh, but I wanted to make sure that this wasn't a trick question, that there wasn't mm. a loophole, and you were gonna. When I said Kyle <laughs> Quincy, you were gonna come back and say, "Yeah, well, John, you like Kyle Quincy, but I like Mark Edward Vlasic." So, so uh, is, is Kyle Quincy your answer? Kyle Quincy is um, one of the guys I was looking at. Because I think there's some you and and basically it comes down to I think there are unique situations that lead to bad underlying numbers. In Quincy's case, he spent a ton of his career on a pretty mediocre Detroit team playing on his offside, and and I think that's the kind of thing that just sewers your career numbers. Um, I had I had other guys listed who I'm not going to get into if I can avoid it because we don't want the conversation to go there, but. Uh, that, that's the kind of situation that'll sue your career numbers. The other guy I had listed there is is Chris Russell, who oh, last no. year. Oh, I know, Jonathan. I know, Jonathan. I know. Well, I I actually, I, and this never comes out, but I have a personal bias deeply in favor of Chris Russell because, I mean, he he's a, a tiny defenseman and he was a very skilled guy coming out of junior, and he would just get pounded by opposing teams when he was with Medicine Hat, and uh, I I love a guy who's. 5, 10, and can play the kind of game that he plays. Like, personally, I love that. And when I look at him last year, he played on the right side. He, you know, there were, there were, a, and he played at a level that I wouldn't have been comfortable assigning him. Like, I, I don't think he's a top four defenseman. I think he's a good number five. Or, you know, in the right situation, he can be a good number five with special teams ability. So he's a guy who I think in the right situation could perform really well, but uh, was placed in a bad one last year. And his underlying numbers were just hammered by. Oh man, I'll leave that. I'll leave that one there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you're like you know I'll have John on and and today we're gonna. There's nothing that can be spun into a Chris Russell question. Seriously, John, come on. <laughs> this is like a, we're reaching like Cal Ripken levels here of streaks of uh, you being on the podcast and us talking about Chris Russell. So I'm, I'm gonna leave that one alone. But I, see, I, I I went a different way here. I went with a guy like Cam Fowler. And the reason why he's an interesting pick is because like, I really enjoy watching Cam Fowler play hockey. Uh, He's an exciting talent. He's, you know, beautiful skater. He, uh, he can really move the puck. Um, Especially I thought in, you know, when he came back in the postseason from injury and played uh, in that Western conference final against the predators, he was fantastic. And, at the same time, there seems to be this mismatch between those skills and his actual uh, results and output. And for years, I feel like there's been this disagreement between, you know, more traditional evaluators and the people who are actually looking at those underlying numbers. And, you know, we saw that really blow up this summer when the Ducks threw a ton of money at him. And I, while when I, while I like him, if I was running the Ducks, I definitely would not have done that, and I probably would have traded him already because I feel like what you could recoup for him is much more valuable than what he actually presents just by himself playing for your team. 
but with that said, for whatever reason, I mean, not for whatever reason, I just listed those reasons. I, I really enjoy watching him play. So I kind of, I, I like him as a player, but the, the results don't really match uh, those affections that I have for him. Well, I, I agree with you that the Ducks probably should have like been really bold and, and traded Fowler this summer just because the reputation, because to me, I, it, it's, it's nothing against the player, but it's all to me, a question of reputation versus ability. And if reputation is higher than ability, then yes, you trade the player unless he's, he's such an irreplaceable piece. And in Anaheim, they've got a very good blue line. I don't think he is, but um, when I look at him this year, like how much weight do you place on him playing fairly tough minutes with Sammy Votnin or Kevin Bieksa? Like if I'm drawing up a shutdown pairing, Vatnin and Bieksa don't make the cut for me. And uh, I, I wonder to what degree that, I mean, I, and I know this is kind of a career trend with Fowler where he's basically a 50% guy, but uh, do you, do you cut him any slack because of partners this year or does, does his long-term trend outweigh that? Well, I think the long-term trend outweighs it because it wasn't necessarily a massive deviation from the norm where it's not like, you know, he was this five on five beast for years before that. And then this year it was kind of an uncharacteristic dip, but the Vatnin point you bring up is interesting because he could have been another name to fit this bill. The reason why I didn't use it is because like I, you know, he might just be one of these guys that just awesome on the power play and you have to shelter him at five on five and that's perfectly fine. And that, that type of player definitely has value. Um, but his performance this year at even strength was, uh, alarmingly bad as well. And I wonder how much of that was just that usage you mentioned, mentioned and how much of it was maybe we need to kind of take a step back and maybe rein in our expectations on him. Cause I feel like as recently as a year or two ago, people were really, really high on him and wondering, whether he was the best defenseman the Ducks had, and then now it's it's pretty clear that you know that honor goes to Hampus Lindholm, and the second might even be Josh Manson. So it's 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 interesting how uh, our opinions and the narrative on him has changed, you know, just over the course of one year. I remember when they were both restricted free agents a year ago, and and there were you know like prominent hockey insiders saying, well, the Ducks will probably trade one, and it'll be whichever one doesn't you know has the more onerous contract demands. But to me, there's like Campus Lindholm is so far above any other defenseman on that team, in, in my view, that like I, I thought that was pretty crazy at the time. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, another guy who I don't, I, I, we talked about him a bunch this summer um, with the trade and everything, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on him, but it's a guy like Jonathan Drouin. And the reason why, you know, he's so young still and he's really been uh, jerked around between, you know, the AHL and NHL and who he's playing with. So I'm going to cut him some slack and it's quite possible that he really puts it all together this season in a bigger role in Montreal now that he's established. But he sort of fits that Cam Fowler uh, description of a player that's so exciting to watch and has these highlight real moments. But you know, it's very easy to get enamored by that, but then overlook all the negative parts of his game that might sort of, you know, throw cold water on it. So um, I, I'm sure there's a handful of other guys I'm not thinking of that you could sort of lump into this tier as well. Yeah, I, uh, Drew Ann, I, I don't think we have enough of a track record to mm. really make a firm determination about him. I will say that the rhetoric you heard after the trade was, I, I don't understand how people are seeing these things in a player with this track record. Like people are, I, I, Oh, I can't remember where I read it, but somebody, there was a news piece that uh, talked about him being the best French Canadian superstar in Montreal since Patrick Waugh. And I'm just going, you know, 
are you kidding me? Like this guy's, this guy's not, I mean, he's, he's not even the best left wing on your team. Like, but, but anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Well, that's very disrespectful to David DeHarnay. <laughs> New York Ranger, David DeHarnay. Yeah. Wow. Former Montreal and, and, and Edmonton <laughs> Oiler legend scored a overtime winner. Come on now. Yes. Yes, he did. He, um, yeah. Another name we could have mentioned here is John Carlson. Uh, he, I feel like he's the pro- yeah. prototypical, uh, if you just break down his individual skills and how impressive he looks on the ice, you're like, man, this guy must be one of the best defensemen in the league, but he never actually rates that well by the underlying numbers. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So Jeff Ryan asks, uh, Analytics helped identify Victor Arvidsson as someone uh, fantasy players should have targeted going into 2016-17. What players fit that category this year? And, you know, obviously this isn't a a fantasy hockey podcast, but maybe just uh, let's talk about guys that, you know, could break out and and produce much more offensively than they have uh, as recently as this past season. Well, I looked at, uh, when I went back, because I wanted to look at what what indicators um, suggested that Arvidsson could be you know, a, a potential breakout candidate. Mm. And he was interesting because he had these, you know, glorious on ice shot metrics and, and also because he was an incredibly high volume shooter himself. So if you go back to 2015, 16, in terms of shots per hour at five on five, I think he was the number three guy in the NHL, Yep. but he had no finishing ability. And, and this year oof, he had finishing ability. So um, I, I went to try and find somebody who fit that sort of same profile. And the name I came up with, and I'm curious to see if you have the same name, was uh, Timo Meyer in San Jose. Yep, yep. Yeah, he's been yeah. Uh, he's a guy I've, I've been highlighting. Um especially now with you know, a guy like Patrick Marlowe leaves in free agency yes. and all of a sudden that might open yes. a, a wing role and you know, I I've spent a lot of time this summer uh thinking about and discussing on this podcast this, you know, stuff that Ryan Stimson's been working with in terms of uh putting complementary player types together and if you're thinking along those lines you know, I'd be very fascinated to see what Timo Meyer could do playing on the wing of a guy like Joe Thornton, who's just constantly yes. feeding him the puck. Yeah, because and and I mean, like even this year, like he playing mostly with you know Chris Tierney and people like that. He he had crazy shot volume, but but no finishing skill. And, and this was a guy who you know a ninth overall pick. I, I think he had forty four goals in his draft year. Like he can probably finish. There, there's there's some pretty good priors for thinking that this is a guy with finishing ability. So. If he can combine that shot volume with finishing ability, whew. yeah, so he'd be my breakout candidate. Um, I also feel obliged to mention Oliver Bjorkstrand. Mm, um, yep. he's, a, he's, well, and he's a personal favorite, so it's, that's, that's why. He's, it's not quite the same profile, but uh, he, he, the interesting thing to me about him is um, Columbus has a pretty good power play. They lost Sam Gagne this year, who was sort of their, their right shot um, who played a key role in, in, in the slot as a, as a right shooter. Uh, Bjorkstrand's a right shot. He might fit that role. He had a good scoring rate this year. He had a good shot rate this year. But but mostly this is just me being a fanboy because uh, he was such a good player for Team Denmark at the World Juniors. I think it's uh, I think it's very justified. Obviously, the uh, added role could be there, and he's also the... He's what I'd call a professional goal scorer. Pretty much everywhere he plays, he just scores a lot of goals, and I feel like that's a, a legitimate skill, and I... I, there's no reason to believe yet that that won't translate to this level. Maybe not to the degree it did where he was scoring <laughs> it on, on just obscene video game like totals in, in the WHL. But, uh, he seems like he could be a very useful player for Columbus this year. Um, yeah, a few other guys. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm very intrigued by a guy like Arturi Lekkonen. 
in Montreal. He's also a guy who's uh, who shot totals and uh, rate stats in terms of goals he was scoring were, were pretty high this year. Obviously, he was only playing like, I think, 13 or so minutes a night. So the actual raw totals were suppressed. But you could see, you know, in a in an increased role, maybe even some power play opportunities, all of a sudden that jumping. Um, other guys... You know, Andre Burakovsky would have been my number one here if Washington hadn't retained TJ Oshie. Now I'm kind of tempering my expectations a little bit because it seems like he'll probably just be kind of stuck playing on, on a, a secondary role. But, you know, on that Washington team, that could still be uh, a pretty good opportunity for him to really break through. Although that might be cheating a bit just because he's already shown, uh, you know, significant flashes and he came into the league with with a high pedigree so it's not like he's going to come out of nowhere by any means but I'm, I'm a huge Burkowski fan you know this might be my favorite question ever because we're just hitting on all my uh my favorite little guys who i never get to talk about but who i who i always watch from afar and i'm like oh i like i, I sure like that guy so this this was a good question. Congratulations, listener. Thank you so much. I think that la- I think that last sentence is like the the description or the tagline for the hockey PDO cast. Bunch of <laughs> bunch of bunch of players I've been uh, admiring from a distance that I finally get a chance to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, uh, other guys quickly here. I, I have uh, Kevin Fiala. Um, hopefully he recovers from that nasty injury he had in the postseason, but he showed, uh, especially in that series against the Blackhawks, what he's capable of with his speed. And he's sort of in that McKinnon role, a McKinnon, uh, category for me where he's so fast that I feel like sometimes maybe even if he slowed down a little bit in the offensive zone, it would actually be beneficial. Like he has, he has that much speed. And then, uh, you know, in terms of you're just looking at the shot metrics and guys that rated really well on a per minute basis, uh, both Frank Vetrano and Ryan Hartman. Uh, really stand out and we'll see if uh if they can have you know if they can if they can take take that next step i mean hartman kind of did last year where especially as the year went along chicago started relying on some of their young forwards a bit more and he really kind of stood out amongst that group of of young forwards they were using as as the most intriguing name i think uh not counting the brinkat who didn't play for them last season but uh i don't know like what do you what do you think about a guy like ryan hartman um, my hesitation with Hartman is just that there's no record of him really scoring at any level. Like That's true. He's never cracked 40 points in the American League. He's basically been barely a point-per-game guy in the OHL. Um, I, I was really impressed with what he did last season, but I'm skeptical for that reason. And and Vitrano, I, I like Vitrano a ton. I mean, how could I not? But uh, I would have pegged him for a breakout year this year based on what he did last season, You know, where he was a goal-per-game in the American League and just ridiculous shot rates in the NHL. So... So that has me um, injecting a little bit of a uh, little bit of pessimism there, but I, I wonder a little bit with Vitrano if it's a matter of, well, you know, Marty San Louis bounced around for years before he, he got an opportunity and really took off. So I, I, I wouldn't write him off by any stretch. Well, and the thing with Vitrano is he also. Uh I feel like, uh, you know, he had a preseason injury last year and he missed a significant chunk of the start of the season. And it's quite possible that just also set him back uh, more than we accounted for. So I'm only giving the benefit of the doubt. I mean, anyone that produces uh, at the AHL level at, at, you know, that young of an age like he did uh, is someone that I'm going to be intrigued by. You know, if the if the tagline for the PDO cast isn't uh, players I've admired from afar who I finally get to talk about. It could be the excuses that I'll make for players who mm, I've admired yes, from afar yes. who haven't produced yet. Um, okay, let's take a quick little break here to hear from uh, from the sponsor, and we'll we'll jump back into some some more questions uh, on the other end of things. A big part of the reason we're able to keep churning out the show throughout the summer while everyone else seemingly has 
uh, taking time off to enjoy their well-deserved off-season break is because of the fine folks at SeatGeek who are sponsoring today's episode of the Hockeypedia cast. The other thing they're doing is helping make the process of finding and acquiring tickets to sporting events and concerts easier than ever before. While I know some of you out there fancy yourselves bargain hunters and enjoy the grind of scouring various websites and trying to find the best deals, most of you probably have bigger and more important things to worry about on a daily basis. And that makes your time really precious, and SeatGeek knows that, and that's why they are doing all of this work for you. They put together a collection of the best values available for whatever event your heart desires, providing you with numerous options depending on your location and cost preferences. If you needed any more incentive to check them out, they're also providing all my listeners with a $20 rebate that can be used on future tickets if you just name drop the PDO cast. To redeem that, all you got to do is follow a couple of easy steps. Just download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code PDO, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase. And now, let's get back to the rest of the show. Okay, TC84 here asks, who's your favorite goalie that never seems to, to get a chance to be the guy? And I don't. I didn't even really think about this question seriously. I just wanted to read it so that I could make the obligatory John Francois Barube joke here. <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to get that off your chest? Or I do did. You I to- really, I really wanted to say it, but but did did you actually come up with a guy here? Well, is is James Reimer just automatically the king of this category? Like, yeah. just by default. Yeah, he probably is. Yeah, I. I I wanted. I, I looked around. Like, I honestly, I went, okay, James Reimer done, and then I went, no, John, put a little more time into it, and. uh you know, Thomas Grice used to be this guy for me, but I can't use him anymore. Mm. Um, entering last year's playoffs, I would have said Scott Darling, but he's obviously going to get a chance this year. Right. I, I don't think there's like a, you know, a veteran guy. There's plenty of AHL guys who I think, or, you know, KHL guys who I think could be really good backups. But for starters, I, I don't see anybody who's really overlooked. Like the league has done a pretty good job of giving people like Cam Talbot and Scott Darling and Thomas Grice chances. Um, right now, the name I have is Philip Grubauer, and and I don't think he's been overlooked. I think he's just young, but I, I don't know that there's a guy who really fits the bill outside of, of course, James Reimer. Yeah, I think that's a fair one. Um, let's see here. There's some other good ones, but we're already at the 45 minute mark, so I feel oh, like boy. we should uh, we should get to the really really good ones. Okay, Mean Canuck here asks, in your opinion, uh, I don't know why you needed to preface that. Obviously, this is our opinion. Um, which team over the past few years has been the best at managing the salary cap, and which has been the worst? Um, Chicago's been the best, and Chicago's and the worst. Been the worst. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in all seriousness, I, I like Nashville as the best team. Um, They've avoided no trade clauses. They've had lots of those multi-year, low-dollar deals for young players. So some of that's circumstance, but a lot of it is skill. Um, and if I have to pick the worst, I'd probably pick L.A. because Los Angeles was a legitimate cup contender, and they've, they've kind of sewered it for themselves. And that's even with them getting away with Mike Richards, which uh, they probably shouldn't have got away with. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's a fair one. I actually like the... Uh... The Chicago answer there that that seems like a, <laughs> a fair way to look. I mean, it, 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 it's listen, it's it's really tough to uh, the thing about the NHL. And there was another question here. Um, someone asked about the Canucks, and uh, oh, Sam Hogg here asks: uh, Is there any weight to my dad's theory that the Canucks make a cup run once every fifteen years and spend the rest of the time being terrible? And I understand, obviously, you know, he's being a, a you know a, a self-deprecating doom and gloom Canucks fan there, but. It is a good point in the sense. Is there that, any other kind of Canucks fans? Yeah, no, they're the only, they're the only ones, especially Continue. especially today. Um, it's it's really tough to stay good in this league for a long time, and yeah. you know, like with the Canucks in particular, um, I don't I don't blame uh, Mike Gillis and his staff for for the decisions they made in building that team because 
they were one of the you know few teams that you could consider a legitimate cup contender for a handful of year there, years there and they went for it which i think every team should do in that position and they swung and missed and then eventually they sort of had to pay for the fact that they constantly kept trading picks to the deadline for rental players and signing players to deals with no move clauses and it's just kind of uh, the price of doing business sometimes. And, you know, we're seeing that with a team like the Blackhawks, where for years they were really good at avoiding those types of deals. And even when they did hand them out to a guy like Brian Bickle, they'd find a way to get out of it with a trade by packaging a prospect or something like that. But now you look at this Brent Seabrook contract they signed based purely on the fact that he was good for them while they were winning cups. And those are the types of deals you really have to avoid, but I completely understand why they're tough to do when you consider that sort of loyalty factor and just rewarding players for, you know, producing for you at really high levels when they're probably underpaid in their early seasons and sort of you, you kind of pay them back for that. But that's a, that's a, that's an, that's an easy way to get yourself in trouble when you're building a team. Yeah, it's well, and, and it is, I, you don't want to underestimate how difficult this is. It's it really is a tightrope walk, which you know is the Chicago answer. They they did so well for so long at such a height, and you make one big mistake, which in this case I would argue is the Seabrook deal, and it's it's all for naught. You know, like it, it's really difficult to recover from from that level of mistake when your margins are so thin. Yeah, um, yeah. I was trying to think of other teams that. I mean, it's really easy to pile on teams for doing poorly with the cap i'm trying to think of other teams that have done really well um i don't know nothing's really jumping out i feel like yeah the predators i mean they've uh they've taken a lot of those good good gambles in terms of signing their young players to long-term deals then now they wind up looking great um yeah i guess i guess let's just leave it at the blackhawks fit both of these bills really well (laughs) um let's see here Trying to trying to trying to look for the best score. Oh, okay. Here's a good one. Kung Fu Canuck asks, "You have a D-man with great position stats and a sheltered role. What stats and signs indicate that he'll perform well in a larger top four role?" And this is a really good question because it's something that we constantly have to try and address and factor uh, in, in in for when you know it's very easy to uh, become enamored by a defenseman who's just killing it in these sheltered minutes, but from a practical perspective for our purposes, we sort of need to weed out which guys can actually be used in bigger roles and which guys are sort of capped at that as their ceiling. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I didn't like this question because I didn't have a clean answer for it, which I yeah. think is the sign of a good question when mm-hmm. you don't, you can't have a clean answer for it. Um, what I kind of came up with is to me, it is somewhat useful to break down performance versus competition level. There's a, there's a difficulty in, um, in slicing those samples too thin, I think you can get yourself into trouble. But uh, there's a great website, uh, Puck IQ, which which does this and and shows you versus. I think they have, good, they have three tiers. You know, sort of a middle tier, the elite, and then the the intensity tier, and how how a player performs against each of those tiers. So that that to me is an interesting thing. If you have a sheltered D, if he performs well when he's exposed to top talent, that's probably an indicator. Um, home versus road splits is really simple, but it's sort of the same thing. The coach has less control of matchups on the road, and when you see a player who really performs well at home and not so well on the road, or, or vice versa, it's it's often a sign of whether they're capable of, of handling tougher minutes when they're in that sheltered role. Uh, the other thing I'd say is I like it, and this, this is another one where you have to be super careful because it's dangerous to do, but I, I do think that 
it's valuable to have if you've got great possession numbers and your goal metrics are really bad it can be a sign of a of a player who's going to struggle when he's exposed to elite talent mm-hmm. it's not always a sign like goal metrics fluctuate but but sometimes it is so if if the scoring chance and goal metrics are good as well as the possession numbers being good i i think it's generally a, a somewhat positive indicator that a guy might be able to step up yeah i think you nailed that one i mean there's uh there's a ton of examples of over the fencemen that uh could be characterized this way but it is something that you know we do sometimes get into trouble with where you don't account for uh quality of competition and quality of teammates and you just assume that guys can do better in 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 bigger roles if you extrapolate the results and that you know sometimes when the circumstances change you need to uh adjust expectations as well and i guess that's that's uh the job of people like you and i to try and figure that out but as as you as you alluded to it's uh unfortunately we still don't necessarily have uh just a completely cut and dried rule where you can just point to one thing and just go well this is this is all we need to look at to figure this out well, and maybe that's fortunate, because if there was a really cut-and-dry rule, you and I'd be out of a job, eh? Yeah, it'd be boring. Yeah, boring. yeah I don't like, want oh, that. Look at Magic Stat. Yeah, Magic Stat is great. <laughs> um, Puck Brazil asks, why is it so tough for a quote-unquote normal hockey fan to go deep into hockey analytics, and what's what's the best way? He, he said the best way to evaluate a player, but I'd, I'd also add, what's the best way for us to um, improve that, to, to kind of get more casual fans on board and maybe uh you know just be more make things more accessible for people that might not necessarily uh be super well versed in everything we're talking about so i love this question because i get to talk about venn diagrams Mm. um so imagine one circle which is you know the venn diagrams the the chart with all the circles i'm sure everybody listening knows that uh imagine one circle which is all hockey fans imagine a second circle which is all people who love playing with numbers and data now you have to imagine what the intersection of those two circles is. And is that intersection bigger or smaller than the part of the, the hockey fan circle that's outside the intersection? Um, you know, if you're a fan of hockey, this is, this is fun for you. This is something you're doing to enjoy. And if you don't live in that intersection of, I enjoy playing with numbers and data, well, who am I to tell you that you have to dive into analytics? Um, I, I think this is a losing battle in some ways. I think there are going to be people who just they don't particularly like playing with numbers and data and they're never going to be big analytics people. And that's just fine for fans. There's no excuse for a team to, uh, to do this, but, but, but if you're a fan and uh, you, you either like it or you don't to me, I, I don't think that it's uh, there's much more to it than that. Yeah, it, it, it is sort of a, I mean, hockey is a little bit of that, uh, you know, hipster sport where people uh, do this with bands where it's like, oh, you know, if you're, if you're not talking about them a certain way or if uh, you were there from the beginning, it's very easy to kind of scoff at it and dismiss people. But I, I, I'd like to think that we're going to do a better job of that moving forward because that's ultimately uh, the way we're going to take the next step as a community and get more interest in hockey. And that's ultimately good for people like you and I to... Uh, to grow our readerships and our fan bases and, and, and get the discussion going with different perspectives and, and people who are approaching things from, from different avenues. I, you know, if, if everyone was just talking the same language and really just viewing it through the same prism, uh, it would be boring and very simplistic and, and binary. And I don't think anyone wants that. Well, and I feel like some of this too is, is societal shift. Like I think we're, we're seeing society go more and more into 
having time for data and having time for the numbers. You see people like like Nate Silver. Is there a is there an analog for Nate Silver in the 1980s? A, a, a guy who you know makes his claim to fame as a stats guru. Um, and, and who is legitimately famous in the real world for, for doing it. I, I don't know that there is. So I, I do think this is something where as more people get into the game who are younger fans, you're going to see just more acceptance of this because there's more acceptance of uh, playing around with data and numeracy generally, which you know wasn't necessarily the case 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I also think uh, another good way to... Uh to prevent people from just uh, rolling their eyes and, and instantly just not, not having no idea what you're talking about is maybe we change our nomenclature a little bit and start actually uh, consistently referring to Corsi as just shot attempts. I feel like that's uh, something <laughs> something everyone can get behind and, and, and not dismiss right away. Whereas as soon as you start dropping stuff like Corsi and PDO and Fenwick and so on and so forth, there is a certain segment of, of hockey fans that you're just instantly going to eliminate from the discussion, which isn't good either. See, this is if you're if you're listening to this, what this question is 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 the tension between me saying, "No, nah, don't even bother trying to convert the unbelievers," and and Dimitri going, "No, no, no, we can talk to these people." <laughs> Listen, um, I, 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 the more people we're talking to, the better, man. No, and and you're right. I, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I think the one thing that that an analytics guy who wants to to make his work broadly interesting can do is to write it in terms that doesn't make people's eyes glaze over so walls of numbers are bad you and and explaining why these stats and and it's a pain to do it every time i i know it is because i've done it and it, it is a huge pain but explaining why these things work i, I think there's a, a general level of appreciation for shot attempts but um if you're going to use something like ipp percentage or shot mm. rate to explain you know something that matters express it in real terms so that people can understand and so that and not just understand but so you start off speaking the same language because if you start off speaking different languages there's it's very difficult to break through that barrier you have to start with the game and and then move from the game to explain why the numbers matter i i I think personally i like it um okay let's we're going to end the discussion with one final topic and it's two questions that we got about the boston bruins and brian talbot 20 asks do Bruins fans overvalue Brandon Carlo, uh, especially when it comes to the uh, the rumors of a potential Carlo Duchesne trade? Um, and Trist the Mist asks, uh, should the Bruins sign David Pasternak or should they trade him for a big name defenseman? I think discussion about the Bruins here is interesting because um, they have a few ways they can go with this, and they're a team that I feel like is. Uh, is heavily involved in, in a lot of these trade rumors and, and could potentially shake up their roster. But I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious what you think about Carlo Pasternak and the direction this team should take. Boy, that Dougie Hamilton trade looks stupid, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's not, that's not even like revisionist that's, or hindsight that people were no. saying that at the time. Yes. Yes. Um, but I, but I guess that wasn't the question and I, I should actually answer the question that's being asked. Mm. Uh, so is Brandon Carlo overvalued? Yes, Brandon Carlo is overvalued. Um, should Boston sign Pasternak or trade him for a defenseman? You can't answer that without knowing who the defenseman is. Like, right. as a hypothetical, like Pasternak's amazing. Um, so as a hypothetical, it's really hard to say. And, and the problem with Pasternak is that he's very young, and the core of that team is old. You know, like the Bergeron, the Marchand. Um, these are guys in in the age thirty range. Chara's much older. David Backus is older. 
So, you know, do you hang on to a good young player or do you try and make your core work? You could go either direction, but it, that's, a, that's a much larger question than Pasternak himself. That's, and, and it really is difficult to say without knowing the exact scenarios. Well, the, the uniting theme here uh, between Pasternak and Carlo, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm significantly higher on Pasternak as a player yes. and a contributor than I'm in Carlo, is that like the established high-end veteran players on the Bruins are still so good that yep. some of these younger, younger guys that play with them, it's going to be tough for us to uh, accurately sort of distinguish how good those players actually are by themselves and how much they are a product of the players they're playing with. So, you know, with a guy like Pasternak, I feel pretty confident in saying that he's a singularly dynamic offensive talent that would contribute offensively and score goals regardless of who he's playing with. But when he's played 55% of his five on five minutes last year with Bergeron and Marchand, that's obviously going to help him quite a bit. And you see that his numbers dip in the times where he's not playing with them. So, you know, you do have to factor that in at the same time. He's 21 years old all the way through this season. And, you know, he was 10th in goals last year and 18th in points in the league. And, those players don't grow on trees and they're hard to come by. And uh, I think the Bruins should definitely consider him a core piece of their franchise moving forward. With a guy like Carlo, um, it's encouraging that he was able to step into the NHL and play regular minutes at that young of an age with that little experience. But even though Dino Chara is not the player he was a few years ago, he's still really good and helps drag his teammates' results up. And I would always kind of you know, approach this type of situation with caution and say that if you, if you can sell high on Carlo right now, I would. I understand that with how valuable young defensemen are that are cost controlled, uh, he's an intriguing asset, but this is like the classic endowment effect, uh, where I, I think Bruins fans are very high on Brendan Carlo. I feel like most, uh, other fans or evaluators around the league, don't share those opinions, and whenever that's the case, um, you should examine it more closely and maybe try and take a step back and view it objectively because that type of mismatch is generally a bit of a red flag for me. Yeah, I've heard uh, I've heard good things about Brandon Carlo from from some really smart hockey people who who aren't Bruins fans um, hmm. who, who really respect him. But to me, I Zdeno Chara might be the greatest, like truly great player who is who's been kind of relegated to the merely very good category over his career. Like I, I think somehow we've managed to underappreciate Zdeno Chara. Um, well, not all, not, not, not everybody, but as a hockey community over the course of his career, even though everybody will acknowledge he's very good. When I looked at, his, at the Wowie numbers with Carlo, and I know you can get into trouble doing that, but like Chara had a 54% Corsi while taking two defensive zone, like taking two shifts in the defensive zone for every shift he took in the offensive zone away from Carlo. Chara's a beast. Mm-hmm. Even, even, you know, at his, this ancient age that he's at, um, he's just a beast. And yeah. um, Carlo, I don't know that Carlo is, I, I think Carlo's good, but I don't think we know how good he is. And I think there's a huge risk in thinking that he's as good as he has looked with Chara. I, I don't think he's nearly that good. Um, to me, it's totally worth rolling the dice and trading. And, and, and maybe this spins off, I'll finish that point, <laughs> but... Um, Maybe it's worth rolling the dice and trading him while he's perceived this way because a year from now he may not be. And the, the larger point here when you have an older core and maybe the key distinguishing feature between 
Carlo and Pasternak is if you have a young player who can help you, who can really help you, like drive results to win now, I think Pasternak does that. I don't necessarily think Carlo does. So if you can trade Carlo for somebody who does do that, and you are trying to win now with the core you have, well, you can still win with them. I, I'd be much, I'd be very open to trading Brandon Carlo. You'd have to really sell me to trade Pasternak. Yeah, no, on the on the Chara point, I I think he's on that exclusive uh, Mount Rushmore list of guys that you you could just put anyone next to him throughout his career and just not even not even worry about it because you know the, the results are going to be damn good and and that's such a huge luxury for teams where you don't need to devote premium assets to to filling out the lineup around him. You just put whoever and and can allocate your resources elsewhere and try and help. Uh, create a more balanced blue line um yeah no, was, to, me, to me char is the player that people think shea weber is yes and i say that as somebody who likes shea weber but yep yeah i agree with that um yeah well like with a guy like carlo i mean if you look at his profile i mean you know he only has the one season in nhl so i don't want to put too much stock into that but even if you look at his major junior career before that like you know he had 25 points in 63 games in his draft year and then 27 and 52 in his draft plus one year and it's it's like he's defensemen who produce uh at that low offensive levels in major junior generally don't wind up all of a sudden becoming these massive difference makers at the nhl level as a general rule of thumb and while he could certainly be a useful sort of defensive defenseman um i think those players can tend to be overvalued a little bit and if there's someone in the league you know, say Colorado, just to go with this example that, that this listener was asking about that thinks, you know, they have a need on blue line and they need young defensemen and Brandon Carlo could be one of those guys to, to fill that role for them and we're are willing to trade Matthew Shane for him. Like Matthew Shane is that type of difference maker. And I think that that would be a no brainer type of trade for, for the Boston to explore right now. Yeah. And, and you look at team situations, like maybe that does make sense for Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm I'm somewhat skeptical, but Colorado's in a very different position than Boston, and uh, trading trading a definite for maybe maybe you can make that work if you're Colorado. If you're Boston, it's a no brainer to do it the other way. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, there's a few, there's a few other questions, but let's uh let's put a pin in it here, and we'll just save them because they're not necessarily time sensitive ones, and I'm sure that uh we'll get some more questions here throughout the summer, and maybe we'll uh, have you back on sometime towards the end of the month, and we can get to the rest of them. Sounds good, Dimitri. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Talk soon, Jonathan. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dimitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.